0: Hub and Spoke, Audio Collective.
1: Here's a new podcast that I think you'll like, Into the Zone. It's a show about opposites and how borders are never as clear as we think. Host Harry Kensru goes from Berlin to Paris, from Ojai to Charlottesville, looking for the gray areas between life and death, east and west, black and white. He meets philosophers and punk musicians, new age gurus and space explorers. And what they say will give you new insights into some of the biggest issues of the day. Issues like cultural appropriation and immigration and privacy, not to mention whether there's life on the moon. Join him for a journey into the borderlands where one thing turns into its opposite. Listen to Into the Zone from Pushkin Industries wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Lonely Palette, the podcast that returns art history to the masses one object at a time. I'm Tamara Vishai.
0: I think this idea of uh, unrequited love is really um, a very intense part of the work. And so I'm always questioning what has been left in and what has uh, been left out. And so then how to reframe, how to reposition, and how to insert for the first time a body that has not often been there or to pull forward a body that rests in the background. This historical body has not been, for the most part, the subject of these great painters. It is not a part of their imagination is not a part of their fantasy. But of course, art has a great deal to do with imagining the unimaginable. So I exist outside of their fantasy. I'm not a part of that. And so I have to make my own. I have to make my own way and build the kinds of images that I think need to be built in relationship to some of the greatest artists that I know. That I have to wrestle with these ideas and that I have to build images that don't exist in any other way, or have not been made yet by anybody else. That I am responsible, in other words, for my own construction, for my own making, for my own cultural production. That I can't rely on on these artists as much as I love these artists. And that they have disappointed me greatly. As much as I love them, I revere them. I'm also very, very disappointed in their engagement um, of the historical body of of the Black self, of the Black body, of the Black imagination.
1: Episode 50, Carrie Mae Weems' Not Mayonnaise Type, from 1997. Here's a fairly obvious piece of advice. Never check your Facebook notifications right before going to sleep. It's a mistake we've all made. And the last time I made it myself, before I finally started putting my phone in another room before bed, I paid dearly for it. That innocuous little red dot on my podcast page, that absent-minded little tap. This is about your episode on Gauguin, the message read. I'm disgusted with you. You know he raped children, right? I went to sleep, or tried to, with my heart racing. I mean, yeah, I did know he raped prepubescent girls. He did a lot of really morally reprehensible things. And sexual violence, both explicit and intrinsic, is rampant in his work. But I also know that in the context of the art historical canon I was taught, and which I make my career from, his work mattered. And finding that balance, that separating of artist from art, player from game, flawed individual thread from broader historical tapestry, it's one of the most challenging things that I do. I spent the entire night chewing on this, turning it over in my brain, How I thought that I'd actually addressed what a piece of shit he was as a human being. And yet why we still talk about his work as a painter. When the next morning, I got a message from the same person who said, Well, I just finished the episode. You do talk about the child raping thing. Sorry to have bothered you. I mean, okay. Let that be a lesson to everyone to actually finish the episode or the article or any piece of criticism before depriving the writer of a night of sleep. But I wrote back to her immediately, saying, no, wait, thank you for bothering me. Because I am genuinely bothered. I want to hide behind the excuse that the reason I didn't think twice about writing an episode on Gauguin is because he's a brick in the wall of the canon that I was taught as though art history itself is a castle, already built, and it's my job to offer tours. I never thought of myself as a bricklayer, and certainly not a brick smasher of a Eurocentric patriarchy or anything else. I didn't look down at my own two feet and consider my own responsibility when it comes to where the art history that I was taught goes from this point onwards. That's the thing about heard and unheard voices. I wrote back, furiously tapping the keys. When you're a student, you can only learn what is already heard, and you don't know what you don't know when it comes to unearthing everything else. I don't want Gauguin to disappear because I know he painted some truly beautiful paintings, and he's part of a really interesting story. But I know that there are other stories, too. And the fact of the matter is, when his painting is taking up an entire wall at a museum, as the painting I did the episode on currently does, other paintings aren't. But to be completely honest, I don't know what to do about it. I know my own innate proclivities. I know I like to follow directions. I like to bake and cross-stitch and seek a safe harbor in a canon I was taught. But I also recognize that I'm not a student anymore. I have a platform and, quite literally, a voice of my own. And that means looking critically at everything, including both what I was taught and what I wasn't. Admittedly, this is a lot to unload to a stranger into a chat bubble on Facebook, and I'm sure you'll be shocked to hear that the same person who would fire off this kind of a message never wrote back. On the internet, of course, nobody knows you're a dog. But obnoxious though her tactics may have been, I'm grateful for her. Because she made me begin to grapple with this stuff, long ahead of this past summer, when art history and art museums began to question their roles in inadvertently or even quite explicitly championing a canon that simply by virtue of its existence keeps a lot of voices out. It was a much-needed push out of the castle, over the moat, down a long, less-traveled path peppered with houses of all shapes and sizes, and into one of them, where the photographer Carrie Mae Weems is sitting at her kitchen table, looking up at me as though to ask, well, what took you so long? And it's at this table that Weems holds court, turning her camera and her gimlet eye on both herself and the world around her. Weems was born in Portland, Oregon in 1953 and has spent her career not only as a trained artist but also as a union and community organizer with an emphasis on social activism and, in her work, tremendously nuanced storytelling and probing self-examination. She is often her own model, but her photos of herself are rarely self-portraits. Instead, her body plays different roles, like a dress form waiting to be clothed. She then integrates these roles into the world around her with the explicit aim of recalibrating and challenging our assumptions about black women in art. And you would think that an undertaking this mighty wouldn't result in work that's so quiet, so normal. But this is what we see when we look at Weems's work, normalcy. Girls with flowers braided into their hair lying in the summer grass. A family's galaxy orbiting around the kitchen table. A marriage's entire conversation embedded in a caught glance. The graceful curves of a woman's shoulder blades. The documentation of beautiful, ephemeral emotional complexity of the human experience. And it makes us ask ourselves, well, what did we expect? Did we really think black girls and women, marriages and kitchen tables, would photograph so differently? Why does the depiction of black complexity feel so revolutionary? But this question comes as no real surprise to anyone who has spent time in the Western art historical canon. Weems's work does feel revolutionary, Because, by and large, there's not a lot of interest in the complexity of the Black experience in our college art history textbooks, and certainly not before the middle of the 20th century. To be sure, there are depictions of Black men and women—more women than men, of course, because, you know, art—but they're few and far between, and almost entirely relegated to a supporting role, where their skin tone is used explicitly as a shorthand or metaphor— When they're actually acknowledged, black bodies are exotic novelties and noble savages like we see in 19th century French Orientalist paintings. Or they're symbols of victimhood, like we saw in episode 18 on the slave ship, when Turner, an ardent abolitionist, emphasized the manacled hands and legs desperately reaching up from the water. But even these examples are a rare focusing of the narrative lens. Because the truth is that usually, black figures are not acknowledged at all. Instead, they're so often presented as a means of contrast, the darkness that illuminates lightness. They quite literally make the whites whiter, with all the material and moral purity implied. And there are many, many examples of this. A black body in a European painting makes the conquerors appear more powerful, makes soft skin appear softer, makes the rich appear richer. A slave tenderly washes her mistress's creamy back in Jean-Léon Jérôme's The Bath from around 1880. A black servant is part of the Dutch fantasy of wealth in Jan Steen's Fantasy Interior from 1660. But you have to think that Weems, when she chose to name this series, was taken with one black figure in particular, who just happens to be in one of the most famous paintings on the planet, although you'd be hard-pressed to notice. Edouard Manet's Olympia, from 1863. Olympia is a white woman, laid out on a bed, staring down her audience with half-lidded eyes and ignoring the flowers proffered by a desexualized mammy figure behind her, who is practically the same color as the black cat on the bed and the dark background. And I should be clear, the white woman in this painting is not at all a picture of privilege. On the contrary, the reason this painting is so famous in the first place is because this depiction of a naked-not-nude working-class prostitute, cheekily referencing a Renaissance painting of the goddess of love, created a ripple of uneasily familiar revulsion through French high society and in the process effectively ruined Manet's career in the eyes of the Parisian art establishment. They were privileged. They knew to be disgusted with her in their present moment. And moreover, they became the privileged writers of art history who have elevated her ever since. And this seems to be what Weems is pointing out. That while art history itself must confront a multitude of sins, there are two in particular that are represented by these two figures in the painting. But while both art history and the museum world have put a fair amount of energy into reckoning with the quote unquote woman problem that the figure of Olympia represents, this intersection of womanness and blackness is a problem of its own. Gallons upon gallons of ink have been spilled about Olympia's sallow, yellowish skin. Meanwhile, the black woman in the background, simply fades into it. From a technical perspective, this is not exactly an accident. Olympia is a perhaps inadvertent but prominent example of how technique has served to erase black figures from fine art. Western imagery was optimized for Caucasian skin, from dark 17th century Dutch backgrounds to the popularization of photography in the 19th century. And not only was art ill-equipped to allow for darker skin tones to visually resonate in the same way as lighter skin, but it seemed to have little interest in figuring it out. For example, any photography historian would be familiar with the Shirley card, a 4 by 6 inch photo card of an ivory-skinned brunette who happened to be Shirley Page, a company model. The card was created by Kodak and disseminated to photo labs in the 1950s as a gold standard to make sure that the equipment and lighting was properly set up. In other words, if your subject's skin looks like Shirley's, the photo was processed correctly. Yet the inadvertent consequence of this clueless little card, which updated its models but never its nickname, let alone its skin tones was that it set a gold standard for ideal beauty in photography as well, and left both amateur and professional photographers who wanted to capture darker skin scratching their heads, attempting to figure out the technical manipulation of light and contrast all on their own. And it makes you look at their photography differently as a result. Take, for example, the famous Robert Frank photograph, Charleston, South Carolina, from 1955. It's an image of a black nanny holding a white baby on a city sidewalk, a hugely recognizable photo purely for its delicate, enigmatic, and even cynical social implications. But you come to realize that these are reinforced by the photo's processing. It's so overexposed that the background is all but blown out. The baby is as white as snow. And you see that this is technically necessary to bring out the many nuanced dark tones of the nanny's face and hair. So much of this photo's detail is sacrificed in order to give this woman her full tonal spectrum. And this also feels metaphorical, and it makes you appreciate all the more how much history, both willful and accidental, is embedded in the revolutionary act of capturing a black figure on film, from photography to video, from Charleston to Minneapolis. And all of this, the canon, the shorthand, the erasure, the processing, is what Weems wants us to think about when we look at her photo series, Not Mayonnaise Type from 1997. The series is comprised of individually framed photographs with text below, which work beautifully in a sequence and also manage to each stand alone, allowing for museums to acquire and exhibit them as single artworks, as the Museum of Fine Arts Boston does here. The text embedded within the full photo essay reads as follows. Quote, standing on shaky ground, I posed myself for critical study, But I was no longer certain of the questions to ask. It was clear I was not Manet's type. Picasso, who had a way with women, only ignored me. And Duchamp never even considered me. But it could have been worse. Imagine my fate if de Kooning had gotten hold of me. I knew, not from memory but from hope, that there were other models by which to live. I took a tip from Frida who from her bed painted incessantly, beautifully, while Diego scaled the scaffolds to the top of the world." End quote. We're again confronted with the same Weemsian juxtaposition of mighty undertaking and quiet dignity, which here are represented by the text on the one hand and the imagery on the other. These words feel at once embedded with the exquisite hurt of rejection and a revolutionary rejection of the status quo. That is, the entire art historical canon we've just talked about, and embodied by its most famous players, Picasso, Duchamp, Manet. We're hearing the story of a muse who's been cast aside, the insult atop the injury of being a muse in the first place, the frustration of being both overlooked at and overlooked And yet the image, the figure, who is Weems herself, is treated with extreme intimacy and sensitivity. She is beautifully captured in a series of geometric framing devices, a circular mirror within the square frame, a fish-eyed peephole into her private space, and presented so gently, her contours and contrasts treated with such loving care. It's almost as if the artist is saying to the muse, who in this case are one, Well, maybe Manet did overlook you, but he was wrong to, and I won't. And setting this series up as a response to Manet at all reinforces the importance of Weems' use of the canon as a starting point. This is not an artist in favor of throwing the whole thing out, of burning the past to the ground with the intention of starting over. On the contrary, she's saying that we need to acknowledge the canon as a means of understanding who was there but was quietly erased by indifference, who was violently removed, and who was never asked to join in the first place. It's for this reason that Weems has been referred to as history's ghost, creating haunting tributes, quote, not from memory, but from hope, of people who not only existed outside the canon, but existed, obviously, with the same complex emotional interiors as anyone who was allowed inside it. Of course, she's not the only artist who invokes the canon as something to grapple with, to destabilize. Take the work of Kara Walker, who borrows from the 18th century technique of silhouette to fill entire gallery walls with tableaus of grotesque perversions, which ironically speak to a much truer picture of the antebellum Black experience. Or take Robert Colescott, who is cited as an influence for Walker and whom Weems sometimes collaborated with, and whose stated mission was to quote-unquote interject Blacks into art history. He did this by taking known canonical paintings and defiantly reimagining them with cartoonish contemporary black figures, as he does in his painting La Demoiselle d'Alabama from 1985, a play on Picasso's infamous Demoiselle d'Avignon from 1907. Both Walker and Colescott are just two fiery examples of so many artists who call out the canon for its destructive oversimplification of black life for its dehumanizing sins of omission. But while Weems's message is no less explicit, her avenue is less explosive. She also explores opportunities to interject Blacks into art history, but perhaps with a greater affection for art history itself, for its deeper layers that are poignant and universal. For example, she embraces a bucolic calm of an Impressionist landscape in her series May Days from 2004, photos of flower strewn and elegant black girls. And in doing so, she invites them back into the narrative, not to rage against their omission, but to show that they too are entitled to the same moodiness and joy as any Impressionist subject matter. To this end, Not-Manet's type is not so much an indictment of Manet, Picasso, and Duchamp, but rather, as she said at the top of the episode, an expression of disappointment in them, in what they chose to overlook in their desire to explore and even exploit cultures foreign to them without truly understanding them, because they were too busy scaling scaffolds to the top of the world, like Diego. And she's disappointed, too, in the art historians who declared them geniuses for it. Where does that leave everyone else? After all, we know so much about Picasso. We could talk all day about his rose period, about his way with women that we know so little about, and particularly his way of putting African masks on them and mining his own erotic response to this manufactured exoticism. We did, in fact, talk about him in episode 34. So let's not talk about him now. Let's instead talk about the woman in this photograph and the story that Weems gives her the space to tell. Again, it's impossible to understand this figure without exploring the duality of being a muse. That is, she who both courts and resents the gaze and how this duality further plays into this intersection of womanness and blackness that Weems is so skillful at depicting. She seems to be saying that to focus this intently on a nude black woman is a deliberate act of making what is usually invisible, visible. Of course, from the standpoint of a woman in art, visibility isn't usually a problem. And Weems says as much, acknowledging that being looked at, being exploited is no picnic either as any woman who has gone through the gears of de Kooning's gaze would attest. But when we're talking about invisibility, as this figure is, we're really talking about rejection, an entirely different kind of indignity. And it turns us uncomfortably inward, asking ourselves when it's appropriate to admit that sometimes we do want to be looked at, to be Manet's type. We want to be seen as sexual, desirable human beings. We just want to be seen at all. And despite my own skin color, I do say we, because this specifically is something that I relate to, and why this artwork resonates so deeply with me. We all relate to the reflections of ourselves, Weems writes. And here, I do see myself reflected in these words if not necessarily the image. They take me back to my younger, fearful adolescent self, never Manet's type or anyone else's, and so profoundly sensitive to sexual rejection that I often preemptively hid myself away, not realizing that I was only perpetuating the cycle or the enormous impact it had on the way that I moved through the world, and often still do. And it's in, and perhaps only in, this deep moment of recognition that I gain the ability to extrapolate these feelings more broadly, more historically, and it allows me to take a step back and appreciate the experiences that I can't actually relate to. How the Shirley cards have still always worked in my favor, whether I knew it or not. That no detailed backgrounds were ever blown out to make me wholly visible. A decade later, Weems followed Not type with another exploration of the canon, but this time she focused on the role played by art museums. And the result, the museum series from 2006, is one of the few times that her use of herself in her work does actually feel like a self-portrait. Because she depicts herself not as a muse, but as an artist, a black artist dressed in black, and undeniable against the white pillars of a series of recognizable museums, including the Museum of Fine Arts Boston. The images call to mind Anselm Kiefer's occupation series from episode 48, how small and ineffectual a figure can appear in the face of something unscalable. And if you've listened to our interview with the Guerrilla Girls, you know just how unbreachable the space between the museum collection and the public can feel and yet also how this distance creates reverence, a deep desire for inclusion. And I'll say that it's worth noting how differently this series reads today than it did even when it was created 15 years ago. A crack of light in this dark cultural moment that we're currently in is that museums are trying incredibly hard to attempt a long overdue correction of the lack of representation of black artists in their collections, of not taking black audiences into account. At the same time though, in many museums, this is happening too quickly, too thoughtlessly, which can result in bitterly divisive factions within the staff and worse, clumsy and tokenizing exhibitions. It's ironic that black artists like Weems are now being called upon to become the savior of collections that were historically defined by their omission. And despite their honorable intentions, One wonders if this breakneck rush to quote unquote, decolonize the museum, isn't something that Weems might cock an eyebrow at. This is not something that can be accomplished in the heady first months out of the castle and attempting to do so only bolsters a narrative of oversimplification. Whether the black body in art is seen as something to ignore, to revile, to save or to exalt, it's still being unequivocally treated as one-dimensional. But not in Weems's hands. Never in Weems's hands. And again, it's her determination to introduce nuance and complexity back into our experiencing of the Black figure in art that encourages us to see ourselves reflected from wherever we happen to be standing. Her work is hard to not relate to, And this is perhaps most evident in the Kitchen Table series from 1990. The series is also a response, this time to the Moynihan Report, a sociological document from 1965 that attempted, with ostensibly good intentions, to bolster civil rights legislation but still made the reckless and insulting claim that black families were less bonded to each other than white families. And again, Weems doesn't respond to this claim with anger, but instead with Reality. she chooses to depict her own family as loving, invested in each other, irritable, normal. The fixed camera creates a beautifully cinematic sensibility as it captures ephemeral interactions around the communal space of the kitchen table. The only two constants from photo to photo are the pendant light above and Weems herself, both acting as the sun around which her family orbits. It's breathtaking in its evocative narrative beauty, and particularly in how Weems captures herself. Only an artist so well-versed in role-playing could so poignantly capture the myriad roles of a woman at home, mother and muse, wife and friend, desired and overlooked. And if you see yourself reflected in these images, or any of Weems' images, which you will, it shouldn't surprise you. Let yourself be seen, or reflected, or unsettled, or yes, even bothered. But take the extended hand, engage with the work, explore your response, find the warmth, the familiarity in this reciprocity, this exchange. Maybe this is how a historical canon stained by omission can expand and look forward into the future. Not with memory, but with hope.
0: So there's a great deal that the work actually has to, has to teach you. And that's why I think it's really important also to um, listen to others to uh, not only uh, I come with my set of experiences to the work, but you as a seer, as audience, you bring another set of ideas to the work that is equally as important. And it's in that space then that a dialogue actually happens and some learning takes place. That you help me to discover the breath of me and I help you to discover the breath of you.
1: For more information, past episodes, and all the images, go to thelonelypalette.com, where you can subscribe to our mostly bi-weekly newsletter on the state-of-the-art world. Follow us on Twitter, at Lonely Palette, and on Instagram, at The Lonely or like us on Facebook, and get the show out into more ears by leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're looking for ways to support the show, may I direct your attention to Patreon at patreon.com slash lonely palette, where starting in the new year, your support will get you extra content as well as some sweet swag or peruse the shop at our website. And if you're looking for a fun alternative to your boring canceled corporate holiday party, consider booking me to give your company a Zoom tour of art through the ages, which I promise is as exciting as it sounds. Check out our website for more details. The Lonely Palette is a proud founding member of Hub & Spoke, a collective of Boston-centric, idea-driven podcasts. And if you are, like I am, still decompressing from the election, may I draw your attention to a recent episode of Mark Chrysler's The Constant on presidential bathtubs. It's not all about Taft, but like, it's not not about Taft. Go and listen for yourself at constantpodcast.com or hubspokeaudio.org.